Let's turn now uh, to Zechariah. If you're visiting tonight, we've been working through this uh, Old Testament prophet in our evening services. Uh, It's a good time to uh, jump in as this chapter 9 begins a new section in the book that will take it to its conclusion. Zechariah chapter 9, we'll read it in its entirety. This is the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like The mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because it hopes, its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes." Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bull, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord and it stands forever. Uh, We're looking at this chapter under the heading, The Return of the King. Last week I had a um, sermon illustration from the Lord of the Rings that I had to cut out for time. And so I'm making up for it. 
by stealing from Tolkien uh, for the title of tonight's message, but a fitting one as it announces uh, what people living in the day of Zechariah would have longed for so so terribly. That is the return of their king. The, they, they've returned to the land, and yet a king has not come with them. They still are without that royal monarch to lead them. Um, as I mentioned, chapter 9 begins a new section in this book. It's the final section. It's, there's three sections in, in Zechariah. The first were those night visions um, in chapters 1 through 6. Then 7 through 8 were the, the sermons, the speeches that Zechariah made. We looked at that two weeks ago. Um, and now chapter 9 through the end are the oracles. Um, uh, at least that's how the ESV translates it there, verse 1. The oracle of the... A word of the Lord. Um, it's translated variously in, in different uh, versions. Uh, NIV has message. The King James and the New King James, I think, perhaps is the best um, translation, which is the burden of the word of the Lord. Um, oracle and burden come together, actually, to flesh out the meaning of this interesting word, this complicated word. It's an oracle in that it's a word from God spoken through a prophet, but it's a burden in that it's a hard word to hear. It's a difficult word to hear. Uh, The Hebrew uh, means to bear up. Um, It's hard for Zechariah, certainly as as the prophet bringing this message that he knows isn't going to be popular. Uh, Perhaps you've had that situation before where you've had to break bad news to somebody. You've had to tell somebody something, maybe your your children, something you know they're not going to like. It's going to break their hearts, but they need to hear it. And so you you bring this word. So it's a burden for the, the messenger in that sense. He's compelled to do so as a prophet. But it's also a hard, it would be hard for the people whom... Uh, It speaks judgment against. And that's where this oracle begins. It begins with judgment. The first seven verses especially are are filled with God's judgment announced against foreign lands, Gentile territories. Um, This is God's declaration of of judgment on the enemies of his people. Actually, it's the way that God declares that he protects his people. So that's the first thing, first of two things I want us to consider, that the first half of this oracle presents to us the Lord as the protective judge. He judges for the sake of protecting his people. He's the protective judge. And then as we get to the latter half, we're going to see it presents the Lord as the peaceful king. First the protective judge, then the peaceful king. Um, In verses 1 through 8, the Lord protects his people in a twofold sense. First, though, is in judging their enemies. So these verses include a list of of cities and territories um, of of Gentile peoples that actually fall within the boundary markers of what was supposed to belong to Israel. These are um, uh, um, regions that are within the promised land. And God is promising judgment upon them for disregarding the Lord and his people, not giving up their land. Uh, the first mention is in verse 1, Hadrach. Um, a little is known about this city. It's the only mention of it in the Bible. Some historians think, though, it links to uh, what was discovered through archaeological uh, digs, uh, an ancient city known as Hatarika. 
uh, which is right along the coast of the Euphrates. Why does any of that matter? Well, the reason that's interesting is because in Genesis 15, when God first kind of gives the sketch of the promised land, the way in which he marks it out is by saying it will, it will be marked by the great river, the Euphrates River. In Genesis 15, when he speaks to Abraham, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So it seems that God is starting in the northernmost kind of border territory, ter- territory that should belong to Israel. And he's saying, he's warning those pagan people um, that this doesn't belong to them. He will bring judgment. And that assures his people that the land that he promised them one day will be theirs. And then this passage just seems to move from that northernmost part along the Euphrates River, and it comes south, further south, getting closer and closer to the heart of the Promised Land in Jerusalem. So Damascus is next. This, it says, is where the oracle burden will rest. Damascus is its resting place. The it there refers back to not the land of Hadrach, but to the oracle of the word of the Lord. It, that, that oracle is against Hadrach, but it rests upon Damascus. Now, you know, rest, that sounds all uh, nice and refreshing, but here it means in the sense of truly the weight of God's judgment is going to fall primarily upon Damascus. Uh, That is the seat of Persian power at this time. The Persians were the ones occupying uh, the nation of Israel, right? Darius is king right now. So God is pronouncing um, a judgment on all of his enemies, but he says to Israel that, that Damascus, their current occupiers, are really, they're really going to get it. They really uh, will be t- dealt with. Um, it would be as though, you know, if we could kind of think, it, think of it in current world circumstances, if, if a prophet of God came to the people of Ukraine and said that, that the Lord is going to deal with all of their enemies, all the enemies that they ever had. But his word, his burden, his judgment is especially going to rest on. Who would they want it to rest on? Their, their occupiers, the people who currently they're dealing with on Russia. Right? That's the idea. When, when God says um, his, his oracle rests upon Damascus, he's saying that the issue, the struggle you are going through right now, the thing that's occupying your every thought Right, that 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 we have foreign people in our land, right, eating our food and walking in our streets. It's something that they could not avoid. God says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna handle that. Don't don't worry. This trial you're going through, I will take care of that." It's as though God's saying, "I'm not just gonna handle the ultimate things. I'm gonna handle the immediate things too." Maybe that's a word of hope and comfort for you tonight as well. We do know that God will ultimately work all things for our good. But he, he lets us know, he's letting Israel know, even the things that, that, that are of immediate concern to us, he cares about and he will deal with. So he speaks hope into the current situation. Um, th- there's, there's, such, there's hope for us too. Look how that verse ends. The Lord has an eye on mankind. He knows what's going on. He knows what, what's... What's troubling you? What you're dealing with right now? Some translations flip this. Maybe yours does. That says says something like the eyes of mankind are to the Lord. ESV says the the eyes of the Lord are on mankind. Some say the eyes of mankind look to the Lord. One commentator explains it this way. He says, if you take it that the eyes of mankind are on the Lord, then the clause would express the reason for the Lord's announcement of his impending judgment on those lands. 
That is, people everywhere looking to God and expecting him to be true to his word, which is that he would punish those who are his enemies. So you need to know today, friends, that, that the Lord sees you. He knows what you're going through. Remember, he, he heard the cry come up from Egypt when Israel was in slavery, and he, he acted. He sees you. He knows what's going on. And you can look to him expectantly. Our eyes can be on him. And we'll never be disappointed. We'll never be let down. He always is true to his word. He knows what's going on and he knows what's expected of him. Well, the text goes on to list city after city that the Lord will judge. Tyre, Sidon, and so forth. Uh, what's really interesting, if you're into history, is that this, the, the list of these cities accurately describes the conquest of the, the uh, Mediterranean coastal cities by Alexander the Great, that... that um, uh, tremendous Greek uh, king and, and warrior. Verses 3 and 4 are accurately describing the situation with Alexander and Tyre in particular. It, it, interesting, Tyre at one time stood in the mainland, but then there was an island like half a mile off the coast, and they decided that they would uh, be to their interest actually to move uh, this, the hub of their city to that island, and they built this fortress, these, these large walls that surrounded this, this tiny island, um, and they thought, well, with these walls built now, and with the sea barrier as well, will be impenetrable. And indeed, that there were a number of times where people tried to besiege them and to attack them, and it was to no avail, but it was Alexander who had the idea, going through the mainland, he he burnt down the old tire and he took all the materials there, the wood, the, the, um, the timber, the rocks, the stones, and he built a bridge out of those materials with his soldiers from the mainland to the island where they thought nobody could touch them. And they walked right across the water and they took that city in a matter of weeks. So Tyre thought they were sitting pretty. And yet verse 4, behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, right? That island that they thought was so mighty. And she shall be devoured by fire. You see, God used Alexander the Great to bring about his plan and purpose. The cities listed uh, make their way south, closer to the heart of Israel. Verse 7 says something interesting, though. Let's skip to verse 7. Now we're talking about Philistia, the, the Philistines. One of Israel's greatest enemies. One of the ones we read about the most often in the Old Testament. But what does God say he'll do to them? Burn them down to, to dust. Uh, bring some great natural disaster upon them. Throw them into the heart of the sea. No. What does it say in verse 7? I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It, Philistia, shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the original inhabitants of uh, what became known as Jerusalem when David got there. And rather than destroying them, they were engrafted into the, the people of God. And they, they were allowed to stay in that city. And so here God is saying that uh, something special about Philistia and these people here, uh, that his judgment... This is what we're learning, that God's judgment on his enemies comes in at least one of two ways. It can come by conquest, but it can also come by conversion. And that's what he's saying he will do f to these pagans. He'll convert them. 
That's this language of, of taking the blood from their mouth and the abominations from their teeth. He's going to take the pagan rituals away from them. He's going to purify their worship. He's going to reform them. Wow! I wonder what Israel thought of that, to hear that. Um, it was a lesson that Jonah had a hard time hearing. All right, sent to the enemy of God's people, to Nineveh, that violent, wicked city. You remember what he says at the end. This is why I didn't want to come. Because I know you're merciful. Because I know you can do this. Because I know you can convert people. Perhaps Israel would have had a hard time hearing this as well. But it's nothing new in Zechariah's message so far. For example, take chapter 2 and verse 10 and 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that such a beautiful picture of the grace and love of our God? Um, and, And how wide his arms are open to sinners from every corner of the world. That he says that Part of the way, one of the ways in which I will handle my enemies is not by conquering them, but by converting them. How does that sit with you? Think about enemies that perhaps you have to deal with, people that rub you the wrong way. And to think that perhaps they could be receiving the same blessings that you receive. Well, that can be difficult for us, right? How do we... How do we get outside of ourselves and actually turn this into a moment of rejoicing rather than a moment of, oh, a moment of jealousy? As we remember what Romans 5 says, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. Uh, There are those here today who know what it means to be conquered by God through conversion. And that makes you rejoice. And it makes you rejoice to know that he can do that for anyone. That's what he's announcing he'll do with the Philistines. That, that they'll be like a clan in Judah. So this is, this is part of the way that God protects his people. He judges the enemy territories. And he judges them sometimes by, by conquering them. By bringing harsh um, penalties upon them. Sometimes by converting them. That's one of the ways he protects his people. But then you look to verse 8. And there's another way in which this judge protects his people, and that is that he lives with them. He'll dwell with them. There's his protective presence. Verse 8, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to or fro. No oppressor shall again march all over them. Right? Again, see with my own eyes. We hear that language again. He's watching. Could I say that this is what we want most of all, deep down in our hearts? We want this kind of um, immediate... um, Uh, personal presence in terms of protection. That's what we want. It's a beautiful thing to to hear that God goes and he he conquers our enemies. But what we really need deep down is we need him to be with us, to be near us, to protect us in that sense. Uh, We want him to be with us. Picture a scenario. uh, Maybe uh, two hikers are attempting a complicated trail um, and it's getting dark. Maybe it's starting to rain a little bit. And, and you know, they're kind of getting a little disoriented. They think they know they're going the right way. But then one of the hikers um, takes a nasty fall, uh, you know, down some sort of ravine. And, and, and let's say uh, he gets his um, uh, leg 
trapped under a rock. He can't move, and his, his hiking partner, he also cannot climb down. There's no way for him to, to get him out of this predicament. So, so the one who's up above would say instinctively, I'm going to go get help. The one down below, though, instinctively is thinking, I don't want you to leave me. <laughs> I don't want to be alone. We're in the middle of nowhere. It's dark. It's going to get cold. I'm kind of scared. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be alone. Maybe another scenario, a little less dramatic, and one that perhaps you have lived even this week. You can picture easily the tension between husband and wife, where the, husband, uh, the wife is, is frustrated that the husband isn't home enough. He's not around enough for her, for the kids. Um, and his reasoning, of course, is that I'm not around because I'm working to provide for you and, and for the kids. This is how... This is how I show my care and my love. And, and the wife recognizes that without him gone, he can't help the way that he needs, most of all, to, to protect and provide for the family. And yet, even though the wife knows that's true, even though the kids know that that's true, what do they really want more than anything else? They just want him to be around. They just want him home. They don't want to be alone. And so the question is, is there a way we can be kept safe, protected, and also not left alone? Where our hero doesn't have to say, I'm going to run and handle this. I'm going to go get help. I'm going to leave you to take care of you. Is there a situation in which, is there any way in which we can be helped and also kept close at the same time? And the answer is yes. When your protector is the omnipresent Lord of the universe, what does Hebrews tell us? In chapter 13, verse 5, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He never has to say, I'm going to run and go get help. He is your help and he is an ever-present help in time of trouble, the psalmist tells us. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Then verse 6 goes on, so therefore we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Because he's right here, right? This is verse 8. I will encamp at my house as a guard. I'm going to be right there. Protecting them with my presence. Protecting them with my presence. Psalm 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Why? Why is that nation blessed? Because the Lord dwells in their midst. The Lord sets up camp at the gate. He will not permit evil to harm them or touch them. And he protects them with his own presence. You can have that too. When you have Jesus Christ indwelling you by his Holy Spirit. Where can I go from, from your spirit? What if I ascend to the heavens? Nope, I'm still there, God says. What if I descend to, to, to the, 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 the depths of suffering and misery in life? No, even there, God says, I'm with you. And in that darkness, it's actually light to me. What a God we have. The Lord as our protector. Secondly, finally, tonight, the Lord as the peaceful king. Seen as the protective judge, the peaceful king. Uh, as we mentioned, in the time of exile, Israel has no king. They had this guy named Zerubbabel, who was sort of like a governor, but he wasn't from the line of David. He, he kind of stepped in where necessary, but he didn't fulfill that that covenant that God had made in, in 2 Samuel. So uh, without a king, they're still incomplete. And yet, look to this announcement, verse 9. Rejoice, 
Uh, Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? For behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think it's easy to see in the first eight verses how God is the judge. How can we say that God, the Lord, is the one who is the king mentioned here? The king who is returning to his people. How can we say it's the Lord? Well, we can discern that at least uh, from this text... Three ways, and that is the three attributes in which this king is described. That is, he's righteous, he has salvation, and he comes to bring peace. Peace is in verse 10. I'll cut off the chariot uh, from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and he shall speak peace to the nations. So we take these three things. Who is the one who is righteous, who has salvation, who brings peace? Well, you explore your Bibles and you come to one answer, and that is God alone. Only God is perfectly righteous. Only God has salvation. Those two are put together, by the way, in Isaiah 45. 45, 21 and 22. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. Psalm 3, 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's echoed again in Revelation 7, 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But then also the king is described as the one who brings peace. He shall speak peace to the nations. At peace is what God is all about, friends. He he created the world to be a world of peace, a world that reflected the the shalom uh, of of his um, eternal dwelling, Father, Son, and Spirit. Ever since... Sin disturbed and disrupted that peace, though God has been on a mission to reclaim it and to restore it. Hinting to us that that his plan is to restore peace on earth is sort of the obvious fact that the city that represents heaven on earth is named Jerusalem. Jeru is Hebrew for city. Salem, Shalom, peace. It's the city of peace. Jerusalem's the city of peace. That's what God is all about. Um, this is his mission. It's called the covenant of peace to, to restore humanity to a right relationship with himself. The covenant of peace, Isaiah 54, verse 10. The one who fulfills that promise is the prince of peace, Isaiah chapter 9. Sent by none other than the one whose name repeatedly, the God of peace, Romans 15, 33, 16, 20, Philippians 4, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Hebrews 13, 20. All of these call God the God of peace. We look then to Zechariah 9, and we see one who comes to bring peace. And he does it uh, uh, not just by speaking peace, but he's even kind of enacting peace with this, this description of him riding into Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey. That is a symbol of peace. When kings were preparing for war... They rode in on a great white war horse. When they came in peace, they rode on donkeys. Sometimes I think we put too much stock into uh, perhaps the humility, the meekness of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. That is true. I don't think though that's the main point. Oh, look at him. He didn't pick a horse. He picked a donkey. No, the main point is that that was a common practice in the ancient world, and it was a declaration of peace. He's coming to proclaim peace to the nations. 
He's not coming in war. And of course, the fact that this so clearly happens in the gospel accounts on what we call Palm Sunday, that's the other reason we can say definitively that the king described here is none other than God himself. Because we see this play out when God the Son enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. But the point is, not so much the humility or the meekness or um, uh, you know, the gentleness and the lowliness of Jesus. It's the peace of Christ that he's coming to give to all people who would believe in him. Here's the interesting thing, though. Here's the really interesting thing. We say he doesn't come on a a horse because he doesn't come to bring war. But what is he doing when he goes to Jerusalem? He's going to, to fight the devil. He is going to battle. He's going to put the devil down and to take up arms against sin and hell. And yet, there's no sword There's no artillery, no arsenal. It's just Jesus and his donkey. And yet, what does verse 10 say of our text? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He dispenses of what we normally think of when we think of military strength. Rick Phillips in his commentary says, The point of verse 10 is that the Lord will take away worldly sources of strength from his people so to lead them to trust him. Just as the Messianic king comes not in worldly might, so also his reign is not to be established according to worldly principles. And that's why Jesus goes to the greatest battle imaginable entirely unarmed. Because he's coming as the king of peace. And that peace is exactly what he secured for us. You know, the Bible speaks of, of, of peace and the cross in at least two places. Ephesians 2 is one. I'm going to read you Colossians chapter 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace... By the blood of his cross. And doesn't verse 11 of Zechariah 9 hint at that? Refers to the blood of the covenant. That this would be the means of of the king's conquest of peace. The king comes to bring what no no nation had ever experienced up to that point. A, A peaceful reign that lasts on into eternity. Now, we, we move from peace, and as we read the rest of the chapter, it does speak about fighting again, about violence again. Um, but notice it puts the military spotlight on God and not so much on his people. In particular, let's look at verses 14. The, the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds. The Lord of hosts will protect them. Uh, Verse 16, on that day, the Lord, their God, will save them. Isn't that interesting? Uh, The fighting is done by by God himself. And and that reality, knowing that God fights for his people, is meant to transform the way uh, we think of um, how to handle our enemies or, or the mission that God has entrusted to us. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 forbade Israel's kings from finding 
um, status, uh, security in, in horses and chariots and military might. And the reason is, well, we're told in Deuteronomy 20, this is what God says. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. Why not? For the Lord your God is with you. There's that protective presence. The Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But here it is. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you the victory. He does the fighting. We just have to have the faith. And and he doesn't fight in any kind of half-hearted way. His people, look at verses 16 and 17. This is so heart-stirring if you can really... Unlock and understand what's being said here. On that day, the, the, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. So there's already this intimate language of a, of a shepherd and his sheep. But then he says that his people are like the jewels of a crown. They're beautiful to him. And I think that's what verse 17 really should be getting at. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. I don't think so much about the beauty of God, but the beauty of what is God's. His people. It's beautiful. Israel is beautiful to the Lord. And because he is so, let's just say it, because he's so in love with his people, he fights for them. He fights to the death for them. You know, the words that Paul says to the Philippians are really God's words to you and me. He says to you, you are my joy and my crown. My, the, the, the diamonds and the jewels that shine in my crown. You're more beautiful than those to me. You're my treasure, God says to us. He cares for us so deeply that he'll fight for us. Okay, so in closing, what, what, does, that have, what does that mean for us today? What, what, do we, what do we do with this? Well, as I've said, since God does, is doing the fighting, we don't have to. Or at least not in the way that we think. Uh, Lead on, O King Eternal. There's a verse in there that says, Not with swords loud clashing or the stir of rolling drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Deeds of love and mercy. Think about it. If the king initially came with angels singing peace on earth, and if this king himself preached, My peace I leave you, my my peace I give to you, And if this king rode on a donkey to a cross uh, where he acquired peace between God and man, well, then his kingdom is not going to be realized through violence, um, through through our, our own machinations, our own efforts even. That's not what he's after. That's how the rest of the kingdoms do it. Yeah, but what did he say? My kingdom's not of this world. What world's he referring to? The kingdom of peace, of which this world was meant to be a reflection. He's getting us back to that. So what does it look like then to follow this king? Well, people have a hard time figuring that out. Zealots, between the time of Malachi and Matthew, zealots tried to... to stir up uprisings and and reclaim uh, Jerusalem from their Roman occupiers. That didn't work. Uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, said, you know, um, we didn't really like the way those people spoke to you, Jesus. How about we pray and call down fire to rain down on them and, you know, wipe them out? And Jesus says, no, it's not how we do things. Or how about how when people 
recognized that he wasn't the king that they wanted him to be. What's their response? Well, they laid violent hands upon him. People keep thinking that violence is going to get them what they want. And then in response to that that violence, what the Jews uh, uh, um, react to Jesus with, well, Peter pulls out a sword and he tries to take down one of the high priests. And what does Jesus say? Do you remember? It's recorded a little differently for us in each of the Gospels. In Matthew, he says, put your sword back into its place, Peter, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's a really, really instructive and sobering warning for us, friends. If we don't understand that that we have a king of peace and we're meant to be people of peace, it will not end well for us. Then he says in John, he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Put the, sh- the sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He's saying, this is the way. It's not through fighting. It's through my sacrificial substitutionary death. The way we're going to deal with the violence of this world, the wickedness of this world, Peter, the sins of this world, is by me dying for those sins, not by you pulling out your sword and taking out somebody who you think is being unjust. And then he says quite definitively in Luke, no more of this. And that wasn't just to Peter in the garden. I'm fed up with this. Stop it. No, no. That was to all his disciples. That's to you and me. No more of this. And yet, maybe we're not pulling out swords. Maybe it's social media activism, right? We get on the blogosphere, Or we get into debates and we think it's through our cunning, it's through our intellect, it's through just being a little louder than the next guy, we can bring the kingdom. We can purify the kingdom. We can can weed out the, the, the chaff from the wheat. It's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. Because Jesus was announcing a radically different approach to establishing and furthering a kingdom. And that's what we're to live out now. We don't need to wrestle. We don't need to fight to get uh, our way in life. Why? Because we have everything we need in Christ. The king has come. That's what we needed so bad. That's what the people in Zechariah's day needed. And that's what we need. We need this king to come. He has returned. He has conquered for us. He wanted... Peter to put his sword away because he said there's another sword and I am going to take it. It will be sheathed in my very heart. It's the sword of God's wrath. I will take it. I will die, Peter. You don't need to kill. I will die. And in doing so, he has secured peace for us. And so now, could it really be this simple? What does it mean to follow this king? Well, Paul tells us. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for a king who protects us and a king who has secured for us an everlasting peace, a peace with you and a peace that we can share with one another as well. Would we recognize that the radical way in which this king has come, announced beforehand by Zechariah, but... um, truly has happened in real space and time on Palm Sunday? And would we see that this kingdom is not of this world? Would we check um, the ways in which we expected our, our, um, our, our assumptions about how this kingdom should work? And would we realign them to what your word tells us and teaches us? We ask this for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Amen.